if there's any kind of magic in this world, it must be in the attempt of understanding someone sharing something. gang, what is happening? I am Mal Foster and you are listening to the latest episode of your third favourite above average, but infinitely curious and this week celebrating its second year anniversary, if you can fucking believe it, podcast. Time's out, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Two whole years, if you can add and eve it. Two years ago, I started this weird, strange, little abstract anthropological journey that looks at the mysteries and meanings of life as we usually say at the top of the show, two years. And it is kind of surreal for me, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because my perspective of time is still really kind of all over the place. On one hand, it feels a lot longer than two years for different reasons. And at the same time, it doesn't feel like I've been doing it for two years. It feels like I've been doing it for about one so is is that a thing? Are people still grappling with that? Or am I the only person that is really having their noodle melted by the whole perspective of time these days? Where you look at things in the initial lockdown and the, the initial boom of the pandemic and then you look at where we're at now and you think of that two-year gap. And it's, yeah, is anybody else still on that, that sort of train of warped perspective? Or is it just me? Is it just my brain that is still calibrating to how time works? The other reason why the whole two-year anniversary feels a little bit surreal to me is because I am kind of amazed I'm still doing it after two years. And that's not to say that this is like a job that I've been lumbered with. This is not something that I'm struggling through. Although, admittedly, with full transparency... During the burnout period of season three, when I threw myself way too much into things that I didn't need to be doing for the show, it did kind of touch upon that a little bit. But as a whole, it hasn't been like that. It has been full of highs. It's been a wonderful creative outlet for me. But the the reason I'm amazed it's still going on after two years is because, honestly... I have a really bad habit of starting things and not finishing them, of having these great ideas and enthusiasm and energy and pushing them forward out the starting blocks and then eventually just petering out. But um, yeah, two years, two years of commitment to an idea is, um, is worth celebrating for me. So the overall shape and concept behind this episode, it's not unique, it's hardly innovative, Um, It's not exactly fresh, new and exciting. Well, it might be exciting and new to people. I don't know. Perhaps if you are just finding the show, you've just found it recently, you've listened to one of the season four episodes and you kind of want to get an idea of what it is that the show is about, other things that we've covered. This is perfect for you. If you are new to the show, this is perfect. It's like the Coronation Street Saturday morning omnibus edition of this entire two year journey. If you've been with us for some time, perhaps even from the start, then you can consider this a sort of victory lap for the two years and a little look back at how it was going. (laughs) What is the meme? How it started versus how it's going. 
usually it's it's going from good to bad in those situations, right? But I think, if anything, we've kind of inverted that because, as you'll see once we start the clip show in earnest, I didn't have a fucking Scooby-Doo what I was doing with this show. It was ramshackled, it was all over the place, and there was a lot of fun in not knowing. There was a lot of fun in just kind of um, flying by the seat of my pants. But I feel as it has moved through that two-year journey, it has improved, right? That's that's always the aim, right? You always want to improve with time and practice. So our first section is the very humble sort of amateur ramshackle beginnings. And when I first started the podcast back in 2020, when I was twiddling my thumbs and staring out the window, wondering just exactly when the world was going to end, uh, I decided to just kind of switch the mic on and talk about things that I knew about and that I loved. So for me, that is very much music and film, which is kind of fitting considering it was a fusion of the two, which kind of made this whole podcast happen in the first place. To try and cut a, a sort of long-ish story short, during the initial lockdown period of the pandemic, I was thinking about doing a podcast. I was kind of umming and ahhing about coming back to this medium, but I didn't know what I wanted it to be about. Until I watched the Spike Jones Beastie Boys story, which if you haven't seen, I cannot recommend highly enough, even if you are not a fan of the Beastie Boys or hip-hop in general, just learning about their arc, the creativity, the friendship that has developed and just become such a wonderful thing throughout their years together as friends, as a musical outfit, is it's brilliant. It is absolutely sublime. But there is one section in that film where they are talking about the making of Paul's Boutique. And this is after their initial sort of huge pop culture boom with uh, Fight for Your Right and just how they were massive at that point. And they wanted to kind of just go away and do something completely different and sort of free themselves from the shackles of expectations. Because everybody probably was expecting a Fight for Your Right part two for them to kind of just carry on as they were but they didn't. And if you've listened to Paul's Boutique, you know what a wonderfully unique and weird and just a brilliant record that is. But learning the whole mindset behind that album and the idea of just being playful and free and doing what you wanted to do was a huge catalyst for this. So rather than just kind of do a podcast on a set topic, it gave me the idea and the inspiration to just kind of do one on whatever I felt like talking about, essentially. And that is really, in a nutshell, why this show doesn't just stick to one topic, why it's kind of ping-ponging everywhere and looking at so many different things. It is the Paul's Boutique effect, essentially, is what I like to call it. But before I got into lots of different things, as I said, I kind of started with stuff that I had a passion for, that I loved, that I could talk about with confidence and a sense of clarity. So music and film was the obvious choice. Um, not quite so much the obvious choice, however, was the um, Lars von Trier film Dancer in the Dark, but it was a film that had been on my to-watch list for a while, so I thought, OK, we'll cover it for one of the early episodes. And then uh, at around about that time, the, the new Run the Jewels album was about to come out, and uh, that is something that has been uh, just a very formative presence in, in my life over the last nearly 10 years. So that was a no-brainer. 
if you've never heard any RTJ stuff, then this is a great opportunity for you to go and do that. And I just absolutely urge you to go and do that because it's amazing. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Yeah, I, I don't know. Sorry, I'm a little bit flustered and excited. But yeah, it's out. And oh, wow, I, mm, I'm excited. I don't know what it's going to sound like musically, but lyrically, informatically. I know that there's going to be some funny stuff on there. I know there's going to be some empowering stuff on there. I know there's going to be some deeply personal stuff on there. I know there's going to be some... I've, I've heard snippets, and I know that there's stuff that is extremely relevant to what's going on right now. I know it's going to be a, a fully dimensional RTJ album. I know that much how it's going to sound. I don't know, but I am very much looking forward to it. But in the meantime, before we get to that point... I'm going to talk about how we got to that point. All right, so I am back from having watched Dancer in the Dark. And yeah, we have a, a lot to talk about. This is a film that is, um, yeah. The musical numbers, which are the only sequences which actually feature music and, and in essence, are the, are the main rule breakers of Von Trier's dogma manifesto within Dancer in the Dark. They are, they're just fantastic. They give you a real insight into the character of of Selma, they kind of make you feel more attached to the character of Selma. But as I say, it's it's the contrast as well. It's it's the balance of of hope against hopelessness. And I just love the way they're made using sort of diegetic sounds found within the world of the film. Whether it's a train on train tracks or one of the machines in the factory that Selma works, Fondria takes these naturally occurring sounds and then sort of warps them into rhythmic structures for which the musical numbers are then developed upon it's just it's really inventive and it's it's kind of believable because you think someone that has a tendency to daydream and who loves musicals would actually imagine this they would latch onto a sound which is beginning to develop a sort of rhythmic structure and then build a song in their head and as i say it's a great gateway into the sort of inner monologue and and the real personnel core of Selma as a character. Moving on from things that were of interest to me, I wanted to kind of open it up and expand it into a more conversational format, because as much as I love the sound of my own voice, I'm pretty sure not everybody does week in, week out. So I wanted to kind of move into people that were of interest to me, people that I love very dearly, people that I had worked with before, people that I had known for a long time but didn't really know that well and wanted to get to know better and have conversations because it was at that point where I feel like hopefully the vast majority of us were really sort of relishing that sense of communication and connection at a time when the world was effectively on pause. Um, I wanted to kind of dig into that and talk to people about Lots of different things, things that they were interested in, things we had mutually in common, things that were happening in their life, what was happening in the grander sense of things. Yeah, it was genuinely a great platform to have wonderful conversations with people, people that I know to various different levels. And it was it was fun as well. And honestly, it's a part of the show that I do actually miss. I have enjoyed immensely talking to different people with different fields of expertise and different experiences, people that I've never met before. That is always a big part of the joy that comes from doing this show. But I do kind of miss just sitting down and just chatting absolute bollocks with people. <laughs> 
So I don't know, maybe there's going to be a bit more of that in in the future of this show. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the second stage of this podcast, was just chatting to friends and family about this, that, and everything else in between. You like the movies, don't you? I love the movies. Yeah? Do you know the documentary filmmaker Frederick Wiseman? The name rings a bell. So he's like... He has, I mean, he's made like 50 documentaries since Jeez. like the 1960s. He's a very prolific dude. Um, and he's really interesting. He's kind of a genre unto himself. Um, his films are always kind of, they're kind of concerned with either institutions or places. And oh. his whole approach is that he will just sort of spend a lot of time either in this place or in a particular institution and just mm-hmm. kind of set his camera up, and just capture everyday life and just kind of reveal how these particular things tick. I mean, I haven't at all thought this through, but I feel like maybe the great thing about documentary is that this sort of at the intersection of something being really informative and really entertaining, mm-hmm. like the sort of within a medium that is, you know, a film that is very digestible and accessible and is kind of, you know, is made to be mass entertainment. But at the same time, you know, if you find like a really good documentary filmmaker like Mark Cousins or like Frederick Wiseman, who is so sort of able to inform and educate, then, you know, it sort of stimulates so much, you know, intellectually and sort of just like viscerally, I guess. I became a fan of horror the moment my father showed me Frankenstein when I was maybe four or five years old. So we're talking late 70s early 80s and as a kid uh, my dad was in the navy so i was a navy brat we moved around often so you know you had to make new friends everywhere you went and so i was a very shy skittish child afraid of the dark and all this other stuff and what i realized when i was watching some horror movies with my father is i would have that adrenaline rush of fright but i knew there was no danger no real danger to me so it was like going on a roller coaster. Like you get that feeling of flying through the air, but you know you're not going to hit the ground. Right. And I became addicted to it. And it just sort of, it was the genre I gravitated to kind of in all my entertainment. As a little kid, I was walking around with Edgar Allan Poe books uh, of all his short stories, reading those. And then I knew of Stephen King through my parents and at 10 years old grabs uh, Skeleton Crew off the library shelf while visiting my grandparents and talked my grandfather into checking it out for me while I stayed with them for the summer and I just was a fan ever since. How's this last week been? So it's been quite good I've been like doing my work doing a bit of exercise and then by the time I've done that it's been the evening so I've just been like watching things or reading or gaming just whatever I feel like in that moment. You've been on the animal what is it it's animal crossing I almost called it animal planet but that's not right. Yeah animal what what is the basic con because like this is this is where I, i'm just out the loop with a number of things i have a vague idea you set up an island and there's animals on it and you can you can barter goods i'd say it's kind of like the sims in the sense that you can build things and create things mm-hmm. but in sims whereas you can do things like to work towards your career goal and you go through different levels there's nothing like that but i find playing it just really helps me relax um I've heard this the characters are quite cute and you just do things like basic things like um, you'll do fishing or catch bugs you can go and visit other people's islands um it's it's not that it's like mind-blowing like (laughs) 
gameplay with like a really in-depth story it's not but I think with everything that's been going on as well especially it's just been such a nice escapism he thought it was a dead set he thought oh this is definitely going to win I've got a single rose I'm singing a prince it's live on the radio dead romantic Mm. and uh, he thinks oh I'm in for a definite valentine's night here and uh, yeah no just straight up no straight up no and then he's just absolutely drowning in in prince instrumental and awkwardness <laughs> and it was it was hilarious and at the same time horrendous can you imagine if that awkward silence went on for so long that back at the radio station that dead air tape clicked in and started playing promo uh, promos and music <laughs> <laughs> they were just like cut the feed cut it <laughs> Unplug go, everything. Go to, news, go to news and weather. I don't care. I don't care that it's four fifty-four. Just go to five o'clock news and weather. This is shit. Yeah. Six minutes of filler news. It's fine. Just make up a story. Ian Bolton got it out on Twitter again. Talk about that. <laughs> I used my router for the first time the other day to draw an outline of uh, an axe that I had in the in the garage in the shed. I don't know what I want to do with it, but I've done it now, so I might... might He's going to start making duplicate axe handles. It's the whole axe. It's not just the handle. (laughs) You're going to start doing metal work as well. Just just start making... Can you imagine that? (laughs) I've got a forge now. (laughs) You say that, but yes, I actually can. Because you started with gardening. You've gone on to woodwork. It's the next step. It's the evolution. I, I have definitely been allowed to be more honest with myself about the things, the ways in which I lack. So like, I am a very anxious person. So I actively avoid basically everything at all costs. (laughs) (laughs) So I am pushing myself in my workplace and with people that I love to have hard conversations that aren't comfortable for me and kind of realizing that the things that I find uncomfortable are very uncomfortable for everybody else. So I've learned to be more patient with myself, ways to pull myself out of situations in which I would be avoidant, things like that. It's kind of what's going on. So you, you, you feel like you are allowing yourself to confront things that you probably would have just purposely avoided in the past a little bit more now? Absolutely. Is that working out for you? It's a day by day thing. Um, some days are super, super good days. Like, the other day, I actually allowed myself to leave my house. I wouldn't check my P.O. box. I dealt with adult things. Mm-hmm. And that was a really good day. But some days I don't talk to anybody or I don't pick up my phone. I don't deal with anything. So it's kind of a day-by-day thing and just learning how to deal with the bad days. Right. I think the funniest thing for me, because I've been working from home for about 17 weeks now, mm-hmm. I'm, and with lockdown, working from home, was fine I, I was okay with it and you'd go to the supermarket and you'd have to queue to get in sometimes it'd take well over an hour sometimes you'd get there and the queue be really little and you feel really happy that the queue was super little and obviously you couldn't go and see anybody uh you couldn't go to pubs or anything like that and then all of a sudden you you could go and see family social distance so you could we could call it deck chairing we go and sit in a garden and deck chair for a bit I like and that. that was really nice as well but then I found um, I have a good friend at work. She asked my address and the card appeared in the post. So when I sent her a card, we talk every day, but I sent her a card back. And when I wrote the card back to her, I said to her, I'm not going to tell you that I've received your card and you don't tell me when you've received my card. So we talk every day on the phone, but we write cards to each other every week. 
Oh. Neither of us have, has ever verbally acknowledged that we were sending each other cards during lockdown. Um, and I found the whole FaceTime friends and family more um, more than I've ever done before. So I, I thought the whole thing ultimately was quite obviously devastating the world, but the, the positives we could take from it really were, were bringing a real sense of family and community and a communication that I don't think we'd, we'd really had before. I think lockdown just sounds like an 80s TV show. Lockdown. <laughs> like a really awful crime show or something, like a, like a police one. You were in lockdown, Sam. Just sounds awful. I've been practicing isolation for years because I don't like many people. So the world that you lot are getting now is just, um, you're just starting to see the benefits of my world. <laughs> I've actually just finished the second of two courses that I booked myself oh. for when I ended work. So a bit of background. Okay. I quit my job, obviously, <laughs> as you know. I quit my job like three months ago, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. And that finished um, two, two weeks and a day ago. But what I did is, because I had a three-month notice period to work, and I've had worked so intensely for such a long time, I, and I didn't really know what was next, I kind of planned so that the two weeks immediately following finishing work, I would do two courses that I've wanted to do for ages um, of like right. professional development and get a good professional qualification behind me. And that kind of then creates a bit of a transition. However, in the meantime, I've like been looking for jobs and been offered a job and been turned and turned down a job and decided that I'm going to set up my own business and had all these crazy ideas so yeah I'm like I'm pumped and I'm energized and I'm I'm buzzed because I've just my brain is honestly just full of exploding of ideas and things that I want to do so I feel really like I'm on like a proper energy high at the minute. One of the best things to come from this period of doing the podcast and one of the best things to come from doing the podcast in general is having these conversations saved and sort of preserved. From a sort of very personal and self-serving standpoint, having these these conversations saved and preserved and stored on a hard drive, I have learned from my previous mistakes, having them there is, it, it means the world to me. Because these are conversations that I've loved having. I mean, I've loved having all the conversations with whoever's been on the show. But knowing that I've got these that I can go back to if I just want to hear somebody's voice or I want to go back and listen to that <laughs> that sort of goofy tangent we went on or if I want to go back and listen to something that is kind of meaningful to me within those conversations, something that is kind of poignant or perhaps vulnerable or perhaps uh, just a very resonant reminder of something, whether that is a memory or a sense of self-awareness, whatever it is, there's a lot that has come from these conversations with people that I have known. And knowing that I have them saved and preserved, uh, it means so much to me. In particular, the conversations I got to have with my mum. Like, I I know that there will be a point in time when my mum is no longer here. And that will be extremely difficult. But I have <laughs> I have so much just joy in, in knowing that I can go back and listen to her voice when that time comes around. Uh, I can go and listen to her <laughs> f- 
field my stupid questions about Krampus, or I can listen to her talk very earnestly about life and answer some big talk questions. I know that that is there. Uh, And likewise, if I'm missing somebody from back home and I can't speak to them, I've got that there. You know, it's it's a beautiful thing to have, and I feel very honoured that they would lend me their time, as I am very honoured anybody lends me their time to talk about whatever we're talking about. But uh, in particular, for those of you that came on and uh, were featured in this section, uh, know that it means the world to me. So uh, by the time this, this drops, by the time people are listening to this right now, it'll be Christmas Eve. So are you excited for Santa Claus, old Saint Nick, to come visit? Nah. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm just excited because it's a lovely time of year and, yeah. you know. It's just, it, it's a, a nice time of year. Yeah. And uh, you, think, you think we need quite a bit of a nice time. After this year. I do, yeah. I think people in general have had a bad year, really. Mm-hmm. All stop. Yeah. I think it'll be something for them to look forward to. and A little bit of joy. Yeah. Yeah. We used to get stockings, but not like they get them now. Right. We used to get one of my dad's old socks, <laughs> one of his old woolly socks, and they used to have nuts in the bottom that uh-huh. you, opened, you, you cracked open with a nutcracker. Yeah. And then you had a tangerine or an orange. Mm-hmm. And then you had um, a few sweeties. Yeah. And that was about it. He is typically very ragged and dishevelled. He wears torn, tattered and dirty clothes. And he carries a switch in his hand with which he uses to beat naughty children. But he also has pockets full of cakes, candies and nuts for good children. Traditional Belschnickel would show up at houses about one to two weeks before Christmas and often created fright because he always knew exactly which of the children had misbehaved. He would rap on the door of the window with his stick and often the children would have to answer a question for him or sing some type of song. In exchange, he would toss sweets onto the floor and the children would jump to to get the sweets, but if they jump too quickly, they may end up getting struck with his switch. That's Belschnickel. What do you think of that? Uh, not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. No, it's a bit So he's, he's rewarding good kids, like Santa Claus yeah. does. But instead of giving them, like, a, a sack full of coal, or sooty toot, as we like to call it here, uh, he beats them with a stick. No, no, I don't think I like that one. I was always brought up by your grandma that you treated people the way you expected to be treated yourself and that's with civility and respect i wish people were nicer to people and i wish people wouldn't be so quick to judge people and just treat them the way you know be civil there's no need to be nasty or anything else just be civil to each other it it costs nothing describe a turning point in your life a turning point for me in my life was losing my sister. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about this? Um, you don't have to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Okay, I just I've, I want to give you that option because I know that this is a very personal thing. No, it is, and it's painful, but I don't mind talking about it because I've okay. come to terms with it now. Okay. The turning point was 
You can always get more money, but you can't have another life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I really, really think life is very valuable. Yeah. And if I could just have five minutes with her now, that would be great. It might be, maybe wouldn't make a bit of difference and she might still have done the same thing. But I actually... Well, you know, I've actually felt guilty because I felt I should have done more. I know. And I know part of me, the sensible part of me, knows that I couldn't have because she decided that that's what she was going to do. So, yeah, um, that's, that's you, you know, life's very precious. Listening back to that, I feel at some point I definitely need to get my mum back on. She would be the first free Pete guest to appear. So I feel like that needs to happen at some point in the future. I mean, honestly, just doing those episodes of her was, was always, always fun. Um, and again, meaningful as well. Like, it, it generally was fun. Like, we would just goof about and, and have um, like a deft half hour, as she would say. Um, but yeah, it's just meaningful to have those conversations. I, I wouldn't be adverse to doing like a mini, <laughs> a mini season of I don't know, like four to six episodes, like covering various topics with my mum. If uh, if there was any demand for that, I'd be I'd be up for, <laughs> I'd be up for that. I don't know how much she would want to do that to that extent, but to be fair, she has always been a, a fairly game and willing participant with my nonsense so who knows maybe that's maybe that's on the horizon at some point so with the paul's boutique effect as this sort of omnipresent influence on the show i as much as i enjoyed chatting to people that i know that i care about that i love that i got to know a little bit better i i wanted to kind of spread my wings and and really just kind of sort of embrace the ethos of just whatever you know with the <laughs> with this show the whole, uh, the, you know, the philosophy of whatever, uh, it, particularly in terms of like the, the content and the topics covered. So moving out of guests, I wanted to use the podcast as a platform for learning about different things, things that I didn't know about, things that I was completely ignorant about, things that I knew a little bit about. And uh, yeah, that's where the sort of history element of the show comes from. Is, is me just kind of wanting to expand my knowledge and my interest in, in different areas, particularly things that I wouldn't normally kind of dig into. And uh, yeah, over, over this two-year period, it has been quite the tool for autodidactic learning, which, which is really cool, which is definitely a really good thing that's come from doing the show. Little Adams put aside his microphone, put aside his drill, and those tiny little mirrors. You know, the ones that dentists just love shoving in your mouth so they can see in those hard-to-reach places? He put all of those aside in favour of developing what is, quite frankly, an absolutely guano military plan. Knowing that bats like to roost, and that most of the buildings in Tokyo were actually made of wood, Adams concocted the following plan. Step 1. Attach time-released explosive to bats. Step 2. Drop a container of bats over Tokyo. Step 3. Wait for bats to get comfy and roost in, on, or around buildings. Step 4. Blow all of them up. In his letter to the White House, Adams declared that, and I quote, 
the bat was the lowest form of animal life, and that they were created by God to play their part in the scheme of free human existence, and to frustrate any attempt of those who dare desecrate our way of life. Yeah. Now, to me, it seems that Little Adams wasn't so much concerned about helping the war effort as he was spearheading his own bat genocide. All right, so we begin our journey back in 1844, 2nd of May to be precise, with the birth of Elijah the Real McCoy. Elijah was born in Colchester, Ontario, Canada, to George and Mildred, who, at the time, were fugitive slaves that had escaped from Kentucky and moved to Canada via helpers in the Underground Railroad. In 1847, Elijah and his family moved back to the U.S., settling in Michigan. At age 15, Elijah was sent to Edinburgh, Scotland for an apprenticeship in mechanical engineering, upon which, successfully becoming a certified mechanical engineer, Elijah returned back to the U.S., but due to racial barriers, skilled professional positions were not available for African Americans at the time, regardless of their training or background. Elijah did get himself a position as the fireman and oiler for the Michigan Central Railroad, and it was in this line of work that he developed his first major inventions. In particular, an automatic lubricator for oiling steam engines of locomotives and ships. <laughs> All right, lads, let's get into it. This is the life and times of Inga Ginsburg. She's not traditional. In the least, this woman is not traditional. She is not average. She is not quote-unquote normal. And that is what makes her such an absolute treasure. It goes without saying, if you've enjoyed this story, and there is absolutely no reason you shouldn't have, because it's an incredible story about an incredible woman with an incredible life, then you definitely need to go check out the music, and more to the point, the music videos. You can just tell that Inga is having so much fun. It is written all over her face, but you can also tell that she's genuinely passionate about what she is singing about, about what she has written for these songs. So... Yeah, a six-hour stint in which Marina takes on a completely passive role, has a table full of objects, some of them are very nice, some of them are just downright deadly, and could have killed her. And for those six hours, she's at the complete mercy of whoever comes to view the piece. Like I said, absolutely fascinating, intriguing, like, flipping the tables here, you know, no longer are the audience having their emotions sort of provoked and prodded and pulled out from them, like specific emotions pulled out from them by the performance itself. But now they have free reign to enter the performance, not as passive members, but active members. And whatever emotions they feel in that moment, whatever emotions they've been sort of percolating in the days before, wherever their headspace is at in that moment, wherever their headspace has been, that forms the basis of what happens next over the period of six hours. Which, I mean, six hours doing anything, six hours doing any kind of performance is a feat of endurance on its own. But six hours with that much liberty in the hands of people you don't know? Oh, my days. Like, that's a level of just trust and letting go 
that I can't even begin to comprehend. So outside of using the podcast to kind of further expand my knowledge and learn about, you know, lesser known parts of history and discover new things and dig into different topics and expand my overall knowledge of of things and stuff and people and time periods and places and what have you, uh, I also wanted to use the podcast to kind of explore and experience strange things. Anybody that knows me outside of the podcast will know, or hopefully will probably have an idea. <laughs> if you don't, then maybe this is news to you. Uh, if there is something kind of unusual, weird, macabre, abstract, absurd, surreal, or just downright what the fuck, chances are I'll be interested in it and I'll want to learn about it and I'll kind of go on a deep dive into it. So, yeah, having this podcast at my disposal, having this platform with the Paul Boutique effect and the philosophy of whatever very much at its core, it was just absolutely ripe for diving into some bizarre stuff and having some strange yet kind of profound experiences in some places. Not so profound in other places. Experiences like diving headfirst into the the very overwhelming and just absurd website LHLHQ. Spending two weeks with the AI life coach app slash choose your own adventure game Karen. Or the six and a half hour album that simulates the effects of dementia. Everywhere at the end of time. Yeah, if you missed that episode, that's definitely one. I mean, all of them are definitely episodes to check out in full. But that one is is definitely one of my favourites in terms of immersing myself and making it a sort of more documentarian experience. Listening to the full six and a half hour project and kind of just recording my thoughts through the different stages. Yeah, I want to do more stuff like that. So, if you are unfamiliar with train surfing of any variety, insane or just regular, it is pretty much what it sounds like. And then the guy, he, he goes into a room and he finds his plate of If ever there was one, that is probably the perfect segue to our next video in the playlist, which is Alistair Crowley, the wickedest man in the world, explained in five minutes. Outside of actually researching Crowley and esoteric groups and magic stuff for something that I was working on, one of the reasons I added this in the first place was because it really did pique my curiosity to whether or not you actually can explain who Aleister Crowley is in five minutes. I mean, five minutes is a pretty short timeline to explain who anybody is, but a particular figure like Aleister Crowley, who has a lot, and I mean a lot, of history, some of it myth, some of it folklore, some of it hardened fact, yeah, it's it's pretty dense. It is a very dense and very strange and yet fascinating background and sort of legacy. I guess would be a word to use to explain in five minutes. I've eaten only mac and cheese for the past 17 years. Here's why. A lot of people have different ideas and theories about what exactly LHOHQ is. Some people think that it's a hiding place for secret material, which can only be accessed through the correct combination of clicks and links. Some people think it is a ARG, an alternate reality game. 
other people have suggested that it may actually be a honeypot device for the FBI. So, you know, there's that. Uh, yeah, after finding out these theories and ideas, how much of them are actually true, I don't really fully know. Uh, but after finding these things out, yeah, I wanted to take a deep dive into this weird, weird website. So that's what I did. But uh, not before I turned on a VPN, because, yeah, you know. The meta description for the website on Google is, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty much a good example of what you can expect in, in terms of just nonsensical content. So this is it, the meta description for you. Leading neuro-linguistic programmers of post-hypnotic operating systems for distributed computing over human botnets. So, yeah, that's it. And if that kind of sounds like a whole bunch of hot nonsense, then pace yourself, because we are only just beginning. So as you can tell by the title of this week's episode, we are going to be talking about a project called Everywhere at the End of Time. Now, if you have not encountered this on the internet, if you have no idea what this project is about, the nutshell definition of it is that it is six and a half hours of dark, ambient, experimental noise music that is designed purposely to simulate Alzheimer's disease. The structure for this episode is unlike anything we've done before on the show. I said that earlier and I mean it. I mean, we haven't done something of a documentarian nature before on the show, so that's kind of a first here on Dime Doubt. But uh, the way that we're playing with the structure, the way this episode is going to unfold, is also very different to anything we've done before. The bulk of the episode is a series of recordings that I made during the experience. Whilst listening to the music, I had a notebook, I had my portable recorder, and at different stages, at different times, I would chime in, talk about what I was feeling, what I was thinking, what images were coming to mind, what I was picking up, what I was noticing. You know, essentially a collection of musings, which at the time was in the present, but is now in the past, but is also now in the present. Yeah, see, we're kind of getting into tenant territory here, uh, but hopefully this is going to be a lot easier to understand. Yeah, like, I, I won't lie, um, <laughs> stage three was, um, interesting, uh, in one hand, for the sake that, yeah, it kind of, it did almost, as I say, tranquilize me, it kind of just made me, not numb, but just super meditative, and, like, the analytical part of me shut down, the, the part of me that has been associating sounds with images has slowed down, and... Yeah, it's kind of sinking a bit deeper on a more emotional, um, primitive level, I guess. On a much raw level than, than the first two stages. <sighs> yeah, um, this is something else entirely. It is just unsettling. We are, as you can tell by the title, spending two weeks with Karen, which on the surface sounds like we're going on holiday with a self-righteous, sanctimonious, racist white woman. But that is far from the case. Karen is kind of hard to define. On one hand, it is a choose-your-own-adventure game. On the other hand, it is a virtual life coach app. And I'm throwing some question marks all over both of those. It's somewhere in between there. Are we in bed with Karen? What is happening here? I just had to ask you something. Uh-huh. 
Can I ask you Am something? I wait thinking about someone you shouldn't? Okay, this is... See, in the last episode, I felt like I turned a corner. Now we're just kind of going back into very creepy territory. Why on earth are we in Karen's bedroom at, at night? This is This is weird. Another really cool thing that has emerged during the two-year journey that the show has had so far is how the conversational format of the show has changed. So moving outside of conversations with people I knew directly, I began to reach out and invite people that were invested, experienced, or just downright experts in certain particular fields to come onto the show to talk to me about their particular fields or interest. And uh, yeah, again, using the, the podcast as a platform to essentially broaden my education and my horizons and my understanding of different things. Certain topics and elements I knew a little bit about, some things I didn't at all. And those were always my favourites, because just talking to somebody who knows about something that you don't is is brilliant because it just it just adds more books to your mental library and kind of pursuing that sort of line of thinking has really given the show a really eclectic variety of guests and subjects so yeah the, the next section i'm going to play for you uh, it kind of touches upon just a few of the subjects and guests that we've had stuff that we're going to be hearing about in just a moment is transhumanism Mindset coaching, trying to establish contact with extraterrestrials, animal attacks, social media psychology, soul reading and mediumship, and furries. Yeah, that's right. People that love anthropomorphic animals. People that have personas, and in some cases, fursuits. Yeah, so like I said, eclectic. This show over the last two years has, if nothing else, been eclectic. How long have you actually been interested in transhumanism and how is it that you discovered it for yourself? I, I know I've been interested in transhumanism since I think it was either, I think it was a bit about mid-2012, I finally swallowed the transhumanist pill and I was like, yeah, this is, this is what I believe. Before, before that, I was I was very strongly religious and very strongly against all these things. Mm -hmm. And there was a pretty, pretty rapid and pretty significant switch around mid-2012. I don't exactly remember what triggered it, though. If I had to summarize it, I'd say transhumanism is the belief that science and technology can and should radically improve the human condition. Is transhumanism a case of playing God humans interfering with what would be seen by many as, as, as God's creations? Or is it simply the next stage of natural evolution of natural development i think i think transhumanism would definitely be a natural progression of our evolution we evolved to have you know our ingenuitive minds and so i think it would be really bizarre if we evolved to have them and didn't use them also always a fun question i like to ask people do you dream in black and white or color yeah we've talked about this um always Yo, did we <laughs> Yeah, we did. You asked me this, um, but it's a great question. And I, and I want to pose this to listeners as well. I'd love to hear their take back on this, because this is something I hadn't considered either. Uh, mm -hmm. But I always, from what you can tell, uh, dream in, in color. Never, ever have had a black and white dream. I can only remember one black and white dream, and I couldn't tell you what was in it. I just remember waking up that morning and being like, well, that was 
sadly gray (laughs) (laughs) it's like stepping back into kansas after being in oz like where'd my colors go (laughs) have you ever actually asked someone that and they've told you that they dream in black and white has that been an answer you've had someone in the college class where i learned this well I think it was multiple people raised their hand. If I'm not wrong, men more often hmm. dream in black and white. Don't quote me on that. I think I th- I remember that though. Um, but I, yeah, I do remember a couple hands going up that like maybe they don't always dream in black and white, but they definitely do sometimes. The other question is: some people always dream in the third person, or more often dream in the third person, where it's kind of like watching a movie of yourself. Mm-hmm. I usually dream in first person, but every once in a while, I will have a third person dream where I'm watching myself do things. And that's always fun. I kind of like those. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I think for me, it's 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 a mix. It's mm. primarily third person. But yeah, I definitely have a mix of the two. Oh, you're primarily third person, though. Yeah. Oh, interesting. A really advanced society. You try and picture a society that's not just, you know, 100 years more advanced than we are, but maybe 100,000 years more advanced or even more. Right, the universe is old enough for that. You know, maybe they rearranged their solar system, or maybe they brought in other stars to their solar system as uh, energy sources, or maybe they built something called a Dyson sphere around their star. I mean, there are all sorts of things that you can imagine if you're a science fiction writer or a reader mm-hmm. uh, that you know a, a really advanced society might do. And while you can't imagine them in detail, if you were to find something very odd in the sky, you, know, you should at least give consideration to the possibility that it's something that somebody deliberately made. I have regrets about this, but I have bet everybody a cup of Starbucks that will find ET before about 2035, 2040. And that's based on the improvement in technology for SETI experiments that, you know, has as an implication. By that point, by, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, we will have looked at a million star systems for signals and uh, a million seems like a good good enough number to find something but that's you know just totally speculative yeah. it remains totally speculative because until you find something you really have no idea whether you're close or whether you're nowhere near close basically what i'm asking jeremy is what animals have attacked you uh bumblebee honeybee mosquito and then also it goes it gets up it goes up from there <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been bit by a couple different snakes, non-poisonous snakes, ever since I was a kid, you know, catching animals and stuff. Probably the most insane one or the most painful one was a stingray. Oh. That was in uh, Southern California. And I actually got stung on two different occasions, only a couple months apart from each other. And he said at one point there was a squid that had had its tentacles wrapped around his head and then on the back of his neck there is like a helmet and the squid's uh, beak was trying to cut through the helmet to crack his neck. And he could, oh and he could, he could feel the beak scraping against the back oh. of his helmet. And I said, well, what did that sound like? He just said, <laughs> sounded like horror. Wow. Yeah. I think that's a fair enough description from, from that visual. And then I talked to two women that were inside the mouth of a humpback whale. Get the fuck out. I feel like when you're in that comparative mindset, there's typically like specific people that you're that you might be triggered by or mm. specific types of people that you're you're triggered by. So again, asking yourself why, but why why might not be enough? That's pretty broad. Asking yourself right. What do you have in common with this person? 
what what are your differences with this person if you could trade lives with that person what are the things that you would be excited about or what what are the things about your life that you would miss if you were trading shoes with this person and try and just think of it more empathetically of like putting yourselves in that shoes of that person and see if that makes you feel comfortable or uncomfortable and where that comparison is coming from is it coming from something like that's that's kind of surface level of oh well they have really nice hair and I, and I like their hair <laughs> you might be like okay well maybe I just really like their hair so maybe maybe I need a haircut maybe I need to freshen something up about my appearance or maybe it's something where you're like, oh, I really like the job that they have. Then maybe it might, might take you down a path of, well, what is it about their job that I like? Is there something new in my job that I could be doing? Do I feel like I'm being challenged? Are there steps that I could take to get a job similar to theirs? So rather than just being like, oh, that person's perfect. I hate them. Oh, like, <laughs> I don't want to see this. I'm like, toxic. It's like, before you're so quick to just throw labels on something or just obviously I think it's always good to just like, if something bothers you so much, then don't look at it. Don't follow that type of right. thing. But also again, going back to that question of what can I learn from this? Why does this bother you so much? Mm -hmm. what, what is it that's, or what do you admire so much about this person? And what are some action steps that you could take to, to put some of that into your life or into what you're putting out into the world? What actually is soul reading? It's probably just another word for psychic reading. Okay. It's but I just, I didn't want to call myself a psychic reader. It right. has that sort of stigma attached to it a little bit. And uh -huh. so um, I'm trying to think back how I even came up with that term. And I may have had some help from mentors and whatnot. And I think when I coined that term, I, I think it was fairly new back in 2007, 2008. Yeah. Well, those kind of things weren't really as popular as they are now. Right. It sort of flooded the internet, all this sort of new age, spiritual, metaphysical is really intense now on the internet. So back then, that term was a newer term. I think one of the first times I ever did reading in public, I was like the manager of some speed dating event with a friend of mine. Okay was at this nightclub in a casino and she said in the middle of like in the break she said okay Kathy's gonna do free readings for everyone <laughs> and so it's like white snakes blasting on the stereo I've got like a massive lineup of people <laughs> that was my introduction so I, it's wow. like, okay if if I can do that then I can pretty much do anything I'm trying, I'm trying to find where I need to be, what I want to be, what I wish to see, but it comes in time. With, with the first two, because I'm curious, and to, to, what does this do for you exactly? Like, does it kind of connect you closer to, to the fasona? Like, I'm just trying to figure out in, in what way this, this sort of plays a part in, in your interest in this. It does, uh, in a way, get you closer to not necessarily the persona, but like being in character, being who you want to be for a lot of people, including myself, 
in public situations, like if you're at a fur meet or a convention, when you have the suit on, when you have the head on or the mask, whatever you want to call it, it kind of drops that anxiety because now there's like a barrier between you and the other person. All they see is the super happy, cartoony looking face that you're wearing instead of you. So it makes a lot more people feel comfortable in how they act and behave in public. Is it just strictly for conventions and meetups that you would you would adopt the fursuit? Or is this something that you you use in, in your personal life? Like like when when does the fursuit get cracked out? Mine are pretty much, yeah, just for like fur meets or conventions or just when I hang out with some other furry friends of mine. Or, you know, just like if it's a nice day out and I feel like having a small little photo shoot out in the backyard or something. Okay. Uh, those are pretty much the only time they come out of their totes. Okay. For other people, they are very much, um, I'll, I'll be blunt here, I'll call them suits because that's what they're known in, in the community. Um, they are used for the bedroom activities. Okay, and they're called what? suits. Uh, yep, suit. M-U-R-R-S-U-I-T. Okay. All right. Over the last two years, I've not only talked to people that had a specific interest or expertise in certain fields, but I've just been really honoured to have real conversations with real people who are sharing their stories. Some of them have been genuinely very heartfelt and touching and inspirational. As well, that's the thing. It's not just been downers. It's not just been like tragedies and 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 heartbreak. It's been life changing, for better or worse. And again, having those conversations and having those conversations preserved, it means the world to me because people have been very real on this show. People have been very vulnerable, and they've opened up and they've talked about things, for better or worse, that have been extremely formative to them. And the fact that they've been willing to have those conversations and to go to those places with me, it, it means a lot. It means a, a real great deal to me. And it is a memoir. That's the thing. That's the crazy thing. It's not fiction. It's a memoir, which basically, in a nutshell, recounts the experience she had when she was 11 years old, where she survived for about a week in the freezing cold, brutal, unforgiving conditions of the Yukon wilderness in the winter. Barely any provisions, barely any food, and on top of that, she had to look after her older deaf brother. All of that is insane for anybody at any age, but at 11 absolutely crazy the experience itself may not be universal but the feelings of despair loneliness anger hurt um love uh yeah all these different things we can all relate to in pieces and that maybe somehow that could help somebody my labor of love that i spent the last three or four years working on is a book called if i don't make it i love you survivors in the aftermath of school shootings and it came out in 2019 right before the pandemic hit right at the end of 2019 and um, it's full of about 83 stories firsthand accounts from people who've lived through or survived school shooting. I want to talk to you just briefly about actually speaking to people for the first time because you you, you mentioned like 
not being a member of the press, not trying to sort of pick the bones of a juicy story for the sake of sort of an exploitative reason, but you're coming in with all good intentions and, you know, coming in from the perspective of a mother as well. And as you say, the, the effects of Sandy Hook has kind of reconfigured a lot of your framework. How was that in terms of first approaching people to speak to? I can only imagine it was extremely daunting. It was really difficult and it was something that I was a nervous wreck about. I actually practiced talking to them with some of my friends, my close friends, because I was so nervous because the last thing, like I went into this thinking the last thing I want to do is cause these people an ounce of pain that they don't have already suffered. So I was, I was just so, you know, cognizant of that and aware of what they had been through. Um, The way that I approach them is kind of like heart first, you know, like here's who I am. This is how Sandy Hook affected me. I'm a writer. I'm a mom. I'm a teacher. And I believe in the power of personal narratives. And for each survivor, I told them about my dream for this book and my dream for the book was that my grandchildren will someday read this book with the historical distance mm. and perspective that I, as a sixth grader, read the diary of Anne Frank. The adaptive side is a more positive way of looking at it. Instead of saying like, do you have the ability to do something? Or maybe you don't, or maybe you have the disability. We're mm-hmm. saying you're adaptive. So you have challenges. In my case, I have limb challenges. You know, they are, I do have a disability, but I'm adaptive. I'm able to adapt to what I have and thrive despite these challenges. So that's what adaptive is all about the adaptive community is a lot of times seen as athletes but it really it transcends that we've got comedians we've got artists you know it's everybody and anybody that's adaptive and really you're adaptive too but it's more known for the disability community but you are very much adaptive as a person you know you're adaptive to talk to anybody on these podcasts and do the things you do and and that's that's what it's all about I love it. I'm a big fan of of utilizing language as as a way to sort of progress ourselves mm-hmm. individually and as as a collective species. And I think language is definitely a tool that can can do that in great leaps and bounds. So I love the fact that you put a positive spin on it and that you sort of engineered it to push push it forward and see it as a positive aspect. Yeah, having the positive side. I think for me, like people say, why did you start living adaptive? Why did you do that? Well, adaptive was around for a bit. It started to really hit in like maybe the mid 2000s, late 2000s. You'd start to see the term way more than like uh, para-athlete. You'd see an adaptive athlete. And then it really blossomed like around 2013, 14, maybe 15 areas. And so like utilizing that word and then creating this platform said, hey, we're not, we're not a victim of like what we're doing, of our circumstances, or we're not like accommodating it. We're just adapting to it. We're adapting to it and then going... And having that term has really helped, especially the younger generation, because mm-hmm. that idea of disability, yeah, it's a real term. You need it in some climates, you know, especially when it comes to advocacy and other things. But then that adaptive side is way cooler, you know, like it's a way uh, more robust, beautiful term of like uh, of going out and creating something good with it. Anyway, Chris threw up a post in that subreddit with the title Blind D&D Player Looking to Share How Positive a Hobby It's Been to Pick Up. The, the body of the text, or the body of the post even, was my friend is a blind D&D player who's joined our group. If anyone would like to have him on as a guest, he's very charming and self-deprecating and has a unique take on the world. Now, I saw that and I was like, that is a conversation I want to have. Going blind, 
I've had to relearn a lot of social skills. I can imagine. Um, it's it's weird because you you can't see what's going on. So, I mean, I hate saying what what was what's happening, guys. Hello, hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I I still didn't get a lot of practice of it because I've just had such a time of uh, the last seven years. I mean, I've had um, kidney failure, so I was uh, I was cut open and went for a kidney pancreas transplant and they found out appendicitis so that went down the drain and then about another year later I got a kidney and then 15 months later that failed I've had pneumonia several times peritonitis collapsed lungs uh, fractured bones uh, the, the works um I uh, I lost my mum two days before I went blind as well and this is all type oh, 1 diabetes um yeah she um she she took her own life so it was quite a uh, hellish time for me yeah do you think like throwing yourself into D has kind of helped you come to terms better with with how the world is for you now oh wow um or is that still like a learning i, I mean i suppose it'll always be a learning curve to some degree but do you do you feel like it's it's made i don't know things things easier for you it gives me something to keep going for. Yeah. It's, um, I, I really can't stress how much these guys have helped me. And, uh, yeah, Chris getting in touch with me is, uh, is one of those things I will be truly grateful for, for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I can see our friendship, all of, all of our friendship just going on for years. You bought yourself a school bus and you're in the process of, uh, renovating it and basically fitting it out to be livable. What's happening there? <laughs> What's happening there? Uh, well, where to begin? Um, well, so I want to uh, make it clear that I'm not uh, renovating school bus from uh, top to bottom. I purchased mm-hmm. a school bus mostly already renovated. Yeah. Um, they, they converted it for Burning Man, so it wasn't meant to be lived on full time, but it was meant to be livable for a short period of time and so the workload ahead of me is not um not that impressive um it's uh yeah a lot of time and a lot of uh a lot of just simple uh construction work is this something that you've wanted to do for a while and have been planning on doing or is this just something that has occurred recently it's for a very long time for me what i do is i um you know, or what I did um, up until just recently is I imagined, um, all right, what would life, how great would life be if I didn't have to worry about paying electricity bills? How mm-hmm. great would life be if there was no rent? How great would life be if um, there was no mortgage, no HOA? So I sold my home. Um, I used um, the sale of my uh, my condo to pay off um all of my debt except my student loan debt mm-hmm. and um i then i used uh about half of the remainder to get this uh, school bus and then i'm uh, currently renovating it but yeah it's been a, a goal of mine to simplify for a very long time and the reason for a bus is not necessarily you don't necessarily need a school bus to, to simplify um but i enjoy going camping um, i enjoy hanging out with friends and so if I could have a home that also doubles as a camper that I can go, you know, to the Midwest my buds in at any time, mm-hmm. um, that's fantastic. 
like that serves two purposes in you know two birds one stone i mean i've done a lot of different things mm. and a lot of things that you know from year to year contradict each other so in 2005 i went to an anti-war rally in washington dc and then literally the next year i joined the military so wow I, I'm all, I was already damaged from the childhood trauma okay. that I, like my dad was, no, I wasn't like physically abused, but it was a lot of mental and emotional abuse. And right. Neglect I, and, I was going to ask about that because I, I want you to be as comfortable to talk about it as, as possible. So I can, at this point, I, well, I mean, there's just so much of it. It's hard to, right. like when you start to try like chronologically lay it out, you're like, ah, fucking God, like how many lives have I lived? I reached uh, a very dark point and I no longer felt safe for my well-being. So I started to look for inpatient somewhere. I didn't know what else to do and everything had come crashing down and I had absolutely no will to to pick it up and figure it out again. So I just I I gave up so to speak. Right. So at the, at this point you're just like well fuck it I'm I'm just willing to try anything that could help here yeah and like so I was I know like being an EMS like I know like I just can't it's not just like I'm crazy commit me there's there's an entire process so like I'm trying to figure out that process for myself mm-hmm. and uh and and that's just that's when the, like the ketamine it just it just popped in my mind I was like man let me look at this. After my my first infusion, like I came home and I cried. Wow. Like, well, not immediately. I came home, I took a nap, and then I woke up (laughs) and I cried because everything was different immediately. My my mind is quiet. There's not a constant barrage of what ifs kind of surfacing at random. Like it's like a -a whack-a-mole game. It's like everything's calm and the only thing the only thoughts in my head are the ones that I actively think about Alice is a former member of QAnon who was kind and gracious enough to lend me her time and her insight when talking very candidly and openly about her experience in and with QAnon in the first half of the conversation which we had last week, we look primarily at how exactly it is that Alice discovered QAnon what it is that sort of pulled her deeper and further into the rabbit hole. We also look at what it is that caused her to make quite a dramatic shift when it comes to political alignment and identity, what it is that made her go from being a hardened Bernie supporter to a QAnon follower. We also dive into some of the thoughts and feelings that came with this experience, the the personal mindset, the, the shift within that happened upon discovering QAnon. We're also going to take a look at how that Great Awakening affected her life. So... I had less and less safety around my community and around people who I uh, love. Um, people who I've been in relationship with for decades. And yeah. uh, I found myself distancing from those people as I was building up a sense of safety and belonging with my new QAnon Red Pill community. Getting out of it was not near as quick as getting into it. So it's difficult for me to say when I was clearly 100% out. That's a really interesting point. And it's something that I definitely wanted to make a highlighted point of. uh, And it was a question a little bit down the line was Mm -hmm. asking about your transition. 
how it was for you or how it is for you because it's one of those things I imagine it's still kind of ongoing in, in small subtle nuanced ways one of the things I started to do is I started to actively engage in uh, some across the aisle kind of dialogues I really wanted to build a bridge between my left-wing community and some right-wing um, community that I had built. So I started to engage in some of these dialogues that were trying to build a bridge between these two political parties. Mm-hmm. And engaging in those dialogues helped me to hear some of the news that I had been avoiding. From right, us. okay. So I started to open the door again to hearing some of the left-wing news points that, um, yeah, I'd basically been ignoring. And that started to shift things as well. Um, I, you know, I definitely heard uh, from some friends, friends and family members, their personal experiences they were having around the coronavirus. And I, I was hearing about people who had lost friends and family members. I do have some doctors in my extended family. So I had some conversations with them over the holidays. I also remember um, one of the things my husband did is I really appreciated he he made a turn and he decided that he was not going to argue with me or try and talk me out of my beliefs because that was just creating misery for both of us. I was going to ask, so so that's what was, was that going on at this point? Oh, goodness. We went through so much. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it nearly broke us several times. The advice he had gotten was to not try to talk me out of it, not try and argue with me, right. to, um, to learn to accept that I had a new belief system mm-hmm. and that it may never change. You know, again, like a religious conversion. Sometimes people have a religious conversion sure. and that then shapes their reality moving forward. Absolutely. He was advised to treat it in that way, that my belief system had shifted and it might never come back and to see if he could accept my new belief system and still love me and, wow. and still create a beautiful life with me. The, the people that came on to the show and talked so openly about these experiences, about these very formative parts of their life, about elements of themselves in such an open fashion. I I'm just genuinely very humbled by and extremely appreciative of. And something else that I'm appreciative of with this show over the last two years is that it has allowed me to have a platform to share some of my formative experiences and to share some of my story. And one particular episode that I am very proud of even though it was extremely difficult, or maybe I'm very proud of it because it was extremely difficult to do, is season three, episode nine, talking to myself, which outside of being a pretty cool concept of me being the interviewer and interviewee, allowed me to be vulnerable, which is something I'm not very good at. But I decided that it was what I needed at the time. I was going through a big period of burnout and severe depression and just just an ongoing sort of existential crisis, I guess. And there was a lot of doubts. There was a lot of just upset going on within. And I 
in a, in a very admittedly indulgent fashion, use the podcast to kind of talk about that. But it was it was a conversation that I needed to have with myself, and actually forcing myself to have it by recording it was really, really helpful for me. And hopefully, it has been helpful to other people as well. That is the definite hope for that. Uh, you know, admittedly, from a self-serving standpoint, it's it was for me, but hopefully, a byproduct of it is that the conversation that happened in that episode has been something somebody else has needed to hear or has been something that has been of a benefit to them. Hey, hey Mal, how are you doing? It has been a minute since we last spoke, mm-hmm. properly, that is, you know, yeah. uh, you know, beyond a surface level, <laughs> yeah. as it were. Yeah, for um, sure. How are you? How are you doing? How's things? Uh, well, yeah, for, uh, it has been a moment since we spoke properly, as you say, beyond the surface. Uh, how am I doing? Um, I, actually, at the minute, in, in all honesty, uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. And that is a little bit of a stock answer that I give whenever anybody tends to ask me that question, as as well you know. You know, it's it's just easier to say, yeah, I'm doing all right, even if you're really not. Uh, and, and, and I haven't been lately you kind of just put your head down you move forward it's it's the thing that we've we've called shark mentality where you just keep going with the hope that eventually you'll just power through it and so you don't want to carry it yourself because to carry it yourself is to to recognize it to realize and to verbalize internally at first that there's something wrong that there's something not working that you're not happy and then when you realize that you then have to zoom in a little bit closer and try and figure out why you're not happy. Or sometimes, you know, as has been the case, the the why is very omnipresent. The why is is always is there. Like you don't have to sort of stop and question. It's like you're running away from it. Like it's very present. And you're running away from it. So it's not even a case sometimes of just, as I said, sort of powering through. It's a case of just trying to avoid it, trying to outrun it. But you get to a point where you just can't do that. You just fall. Yeah. And then it's gaining on you even closer yeah. to the point where it's on top of you. And then when it's there and you have no other option but to confront it, but to carry it. Mm-hmm then, yeah, you do kind of want to carry it yourself out of stubbornness because you're proud. You are stubborn. (laughs) You're proud. You value your independence to a great amount. But at the same time, it's not just that. It's a case of... I don't want to burden other people with my problems. And that is probably the most singular, ridiculous (laughs) statement I could probably make. Yeah. But it's it's true Uh because... It's it's ridiculous because I, yeah I I get it I get it it's ridiculous because the people that love you that care about you that it's not a burden to them yeah and you know this this is the thing you know this but it's it's your self esteem it's your own mindset which is constantly telling you the opposite and sort of presenting that as the truth when really deeply you know it's not you know that they. They do care. 
and it's not a burden to yeah. So there you go. In a non-chronological fashion, that has been two years of this weird, strange, little, goofy podcast in a nutshell. It has been quite the journey in just two years, going from having no idea and embracing the philosophy of whatever and the Paul's Boutique effect to having amazing conversations, both with people that I know and love and people that I have met for the first time because of this. It's also opened up my mind to different ideas. It's got me to learn about things I would never have had an interest in learning about. Um, yeah, it's had its ups and downs. You know, personally, I talked about the burnout period of season three, but it allowed me to kind of confront a lot of stuff as well. So, yeah, it has been quite the journey over these last two years. There has been ebbs and flows. There have been rough patches. There have been points where I've become too obsessed with doing it and I've forgotten the roots. I've kind of just abandoned the philosophy of whatever. I've become too laser-focused on making everything just right. Um, there have been points where I've just <laughs> thrown reckless abandon into it. There have been things that haven't worked at all. There have been things that I think have worked fantastically. Um, like life, it's a work in progress, and you know, it's been, yeah, <laughs> how profound. As far as the future of the show goes, I honestly don't know what that looks like. I would like to get back to basics a little bit. At the same time, I would like to try different things. I would like to implement more documentarian elements into it, more experiences. And th these are all possible. You know, that is the beauty of embracing the whatever philosophy, the Paul's boutique effect, is that it can be whatever the fuck I want it to be or whatever the fuck you want it to be, you know. And that is precious to me, is, is not having that sort of rigid sense of control, which I've tried to enforce at points. It doesn't work. It's better when it's open. And it's willing to embrace whatever comes. So with that in mind, for the future, I would love to know what you felt has worked over the last two years, what hasn't, what you would like to hear or see. What do you want Dined Out to be moving forward? Because this is as much yours as it is mine. And I mean that. I put the work in. But it is, is as much yours because you listen. You give me the feedback. You talk to me. So what do you want it to be? The best way to share your ideas, to give me your input, to give me your thoughts and feelings on the last two years and, you know, the next however long, whatever you want the show to be, the best way to share all of that is to get in touch with me on social media. The most immediate places are, of course, Twitter and Instagram, where you can find me at I am Mal Foster. Um, yeah, let me know. Where, where should we go with this? What would you like to see covered? Who would you like to hear me talk to? What is this going to look like? Whatever happens, whatever the future of Dimed Out has in store, I want to say at this juncture, at the two-year mark, to anybody, no matter if you've been on from the beginning, if you've just jumped into it last week, it doesn't matter. If you've been on the show, if you've listened to the show, if you've shared the show, 
if you've given me feedback, if you've been engaged, if you've taken any time out of your day for this, I want to say, with all sincerity, a heartfelt thank you. If you weren't listening, I wouldn't be talking. If I felt like I was just just shouting into the void, as it were, I would have packed this shit in a long time ago. But you are listening, and I am deeply, deeply grateful. And on that note, that about does it for this bumper edition two-year celebration. I had to go a little bit longer with this, right? Granted, a big chunk of it is just me babbling on about the past, but, you know, considering the circumstances, it did have to be a bit bigger. It did have to be extra. So, yeah, that's it. That's it for this two-year anniversary episode. Um... Next week is one of my favourite conversations in the entire two-year stretch. And I've had a lot, like, there's a lot. It is it is pretty packed in that particular VIP section of my favourite conversations I've had on this show. But there is a new entry sashaying its way through that velvet rope into that very exclusive area. And that comes in the form of next week's episode, where I will be talking to the former director of one of, if not the, most brilliant museum I've ever been in. Ever. Evs. Maybe. I don't know. I'd have to really sit down and think about that. But it's definitely up there, if it's not, like, the best Evs. Uh, Anyway, I'm going to be talking to the former director of that museum. I'm not telling you what the museum is until next week because I don't want you Googling it and spoiling it for yourself. The the, the less you know with this, the better, I think. So you're just just going to have to be a bit patient with me. But trust me, it is brilliant and you will want to hear it. So if you haven't done so already, go ahead and subscribe to this show. We're available wherever you get your podcasts from, presumably wherever it is you're listening to this on. You can find us there. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, if you've enjoyed the last two years, then, uh, you know, subscriptions always help with the internet magic and algorithm stuff. And uh, reviews are always welcome. And I tell you what, no matter how long this goes for, no matter how long this podcast continues to just track through this world, I am determined to get one bloody haiku review. I have been asking for a while, and nobody's delivered yet. Are you going to be the first? Do I have to offer a cash prize? Is that what it comes down to? Just cheap base bribery. Because I will do it. I'm not saying it's going to be much, but I will do it if I need to, to get that haiku review. Anyway, next week, haiku review, please, and a fantastic conversation about an absolutely brilliant museum that you will absolutely love. As for this week, we're done, but for a little bit of nostalgia, I'm not going to play the usual outro, I'm actually going to play you the very first intro that we had, and a little bit of inside baseball for you before I dive into that musical piece. I bought this on Fiverr, and I bought it with money that I earned as a freelancer for writing a fake review for a children's book. That's right, somebody paid me to pretend that I had a daughter who was obsessed with mermaids and for her birthday I bought her this woman's mermaid book and my daughter just couldn't get enough of all the mermaid, all the magic, all the memories. And uh, with that cash money, I paid somebody to make our very first theme tune. So with that in mind, look after yourselves, look after each other, 
And until next time, keep it timed out. <laughs> <laughs>